Good morning. He is risen. He is risen I love that whenever on Easter Sunday morning we greet one another that way. Do you know that that, that stretches back to millennia? Christians from the past two millennia have greeted one another on Easter Sunday morning in that way. One would greet the first one and say, He is risen, and then the response would come, He is risen indeed. And so when we engage in that as Christians on a day like today, we are engaging in something that is a faithful testimony of saints that have passed down for 2,000 years. And so what a great testimony that is to say to others that we serve a, a Christ that is risen from the dead. I want to thank you for coming and being with us here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. Thank you for attending with us. We've already been blessed this morning through, our, through the, the, the ministry of the Ivy Creek Baptist Church Choir and Orchestra and Will and his praise team. And I hope that you've already received a blessing from them. And I also hope that you receive a blessing as we look into God's Word this morning and, and pray that that Word will, will cause us to, to develop a deeper and closer relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. If you brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you did, please take them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, it is a seminal passage that we're going to look at this morning concerning the resurrection in the New Testament. And as you make your way there, as I had begun thinking about this sermon a few weeks ago, um, I was reminded of an experience that I had a couple of years ago, actually, in October of 2014. Back in October of 2014, I stood on a little knoll in a cemetery that was up in Gainesville, Georgia, in my hometown, and was flanked uh, by my family. And my father had just concluded with a prayer, and that prayer then was the conclusion of a funeral service and the interment of my 94-year-old grandmother. Um, we affectionately called her Nanny. And Nanny had just been brought to this cemetery and laid next to Papa, who was my grandfather. And he was there, their, their bodies were there on this little knoll. And, and so as I'm standing there and I, and I see the, the casket there, I look just up. And as I looked up and down, down that little hill there, I could see a little house. And it was inside that little house across the little road that many of my early childhood memories were contained. That little house was actually a parsonage. It was owned by the church that was across the highway. And when I was two years old, my family, my mom and dad and my brother and I moved into that house and that's where we lived for six years. And immediately when I looked at that little house, all of these memories began to flood over me. I thought of Christmases in that house. I thought of birthday parties that we had in that house. I thought about hunting Easter eggs out in the yard, a yard that seemed a whole lot bigger when I was a kid than it did when I was looking at it from that perspective. I thought about all my family, my aunts and uncles that would come over, my cousin Matthew would come over and we would have dinners there. We would talk, we would laugh, lots of good memories in that house. I also thought about the house being the fact that that's where my nanny and papa would come. We would eat together. Enjoy one another company. All of those things just came and flooded over me in an instant. And then my eyes drifted back from the little house, back to what was right in front of me. There was a tombstone. The 
had my grandfather's name etched on it 15 years prior. And then there was the new dirt that had been dug out of the hole into which my grandmother's body would eventually be placed. You know, as a child, when I was playing in the yard of that little house, never once did it cross my mind to look up on that little hill and to consider the fact that one day I would be standing there over the bodies of my grandparents. Matter of fact, the thought of death and separation were as far removed from me as they could have possibly been. Nevertheless, four decades later, there I stood. And as I did, I contemplated the inevitability of death. And in that moment, that little hundred yards that separated that house from those two bodies laying there in that grave may as well have been a thousand miles. I don't know if you've experienced anything like that before. Here's what I do know. If you haven't, you will. You'll have a moment in your life where something will take place. You'll have to say goodbye to a loved one. Maybe it'll come because of disease or just natural causes might come as a result of an automobile accident, may come as a result of an act of war. We don't know. Here's what I do know. Regardless of whether that death was anticipated or not, you will be faced with death's inevitability. Death is not a subject that we like to spend much time talking about. Matter of fact, just my discussion of it so far this morning may have already made you uncomfortable. And yet the reality is that every day of our lives, the unavoidable fact of death meets us at every turn. It is an inescapable fact. Therefore, we would do well not to shield ourselves from it, not to stop up our ears, close our eyes, or close our mouth with regard to the subject. That's what King Louis XV of, of France tried to do. It's said that he banned all people from his kingdom from mentioning the word death in his presence, as if by doing so, he would never have to face it. But even though King Louis tried to avoid it, he died nonetheless. And the fact is that all of us will one day face the same fate as King Louis did. All of us will one day die. Now, we can put off the inevitable as long as we can. We can eat right, we can exercise, we can take vitamins, we can take the right medicine that the doctors provide, we can have surgeries. All of those things can be done on our behalf in order to prolong or to, to, to put off the inevitability of it. But, as Michael Rogers has written, inevitably the day will come when the great engineering marvel of your human body will shut down and cease thousands of functions in a matter of minutes. Your heart muscle will stop pumping and masses of neurons in the brain will switch off. Your body's core temperature will cool and rigor mortis will set in. Friends, that is the future that awaits all of us and it is the bad news of the inevitability of death. But on this Easter Sunday morning, I have come to bring you good news. You see, in light of the inevitability 
of death. I have come to bring you the best possible news that I could ever tell anyone. I have come to tell you that because of something that happened 2,000 years ago, you have no reason to fear death. Because of this cataclysmic, earth-shattering, life-changing miracle that occurred 2,000 years ago, death has been defanged and the power of its venom have been neutralized. Now, obviously, the event to which I'm referring this morning and the reason why we gather together here today is because Jesus Christ rose bodily. He rose physically by the power of God from the grave. And because that is a truth, because that happened, you and I now have hope that death will not have the last word over us. This morning I have entitled my sermon, The Resurrection of Christ and the Defeat of Death. And I want to read from you from 1 Corinthians 15. This entire chapter is a very long chapter. And as I mentioned before, it's the, it's the chapter that you want to go to. If you want to read about the resurrection of Christ and then you want to hear about all the benefits that that resurrection brings to us, we will not have time to cover all of it this morning. But what I do want to read is some verses and talk about those things this morning as a way of talking about the defeat of death. Read with me beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Notice what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Here it is. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now look down with me in verse 14. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified that God has raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, to God the Father, and when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for the truth that it teaches us and for what it reveals to us, where our hope lies. 
the fact that what it reveals to us where our hope does not lie. And Father, in many respects, that is exactly what we need to know. We need to know where truth is and where it's not. And your word gives us that understanding. It points us to the only hope that we have as human beings who are sinful human beings. And that is that it comes in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, and risen again. That is the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. My prayer this morning is that we would believe it and that it would radically transform and change our lives. This is my prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I love how the Apostle Paul begins this passage. He begins by providing us a summarized and a very succinct presentation of the gospel. Now, by gospel, what I mean is that that is, that is the good news. That's really what gospel means. It is the good news of, of what God has done to counteract the bad news that we've just discussed. The bad news is, is that all of us are going to face death. The good news is, is that God has done something to remedy that on our behalf. And the summary of what he has done is just what we read there in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 15. Namely this, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice when Paul gives us that summarized form of the gospel and the good news is that he does not start with Sunday and the resurrection of Christ. That's not where it begins. He starts back on what took place on Good Friday when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, where he died for our sins, as Paul writes. Now, that's an extremely important point to recognize. You see, for many, Christ is viewed just simply as a good role model. He's viewed as a good teacher who, who came to give us good platitudes upon which we can build our lives. And as a role model, he came to be somebody who showed us how we ought to live and how we can live up to a higher ethical standard, moral standard in this world. To some, they just view him as a prophet who, who came by way of, of just wanting to show us what a good life should look like. And I want you to know, certainly Jesus was a prophet Certainly he was an exemplary role model to point us to the direction and the way we ought to live. Certainly his teaching pointed us to how we ought to live. But as this passage makes clear, Christ's purpose in coming to earth was far more than to just be an exemplary role model or an excellent teacher. In fact, the essence of the gospel lies in the statement that Paul makes here that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. You see, as we've already determined, when each of us looks to our future, we all inevitably come to a stop sign. We come to an end point that is marked by death. And what the scriptures reveal to us is that regardless of whatever description may be written by a medical examiner on our death certificate, the ultimate cause of our death is sin. That's what the Bible reveals to us. Sin, we first see it raise its ugly head all the way back in the book of Genesis, back in the Garden of Eden. There we saw that Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan and they succumbed to his temptation by choosing to rebel against God's command. God had commanded 
that they not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was there in the garden. He warned them very clearly in Genesis 2. He says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And disastrously, we learned that they did eat of that tree. And as a result, not only did they die, but death entered into God's perfectly created environment and it spread to everybody who came after them. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 12 says this, through one man, that is Adam, sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, Paul in very general terms tells us what we know specifically about ourselves. And that is that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. All of us have broken God's standard of obedience. Never once in the 20 plus years that I have been in ministry have I ever talked with someone under a counseling session or in witnessing to them or just having a general conversation with them. Never once have I ever had a person tell me that they were perfect and had lived an absolutely perfect life. Not once. I've had plenty of them point to other people and say, I've lived a lot better than they have. But I've never had someone say, I've lived a perfect, sinless life. Do you want to know why? Because all of us know inherently we've not lived a perfect life. Every one of us knows by some standard we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us the reason that is the case is because sin entered the world. And because sin has entered the world, we're all participants in it. And because we're all participants in it, all of us face the exact same outcome. Death comes as a result. Of sin just like Adam just like Eve just like every other human being who's ever been born you and I will also surely die but here in 1st Corinthians 15 Paul gives us the good news that Christ came to die for our sins and here's where we need to be reminded of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus. You see, in his nature, he, had, he was both fully God and fully man. And having the uniqueness of those two natures, he could simultaneously lay his hand on the Godhead and also lay his hand on humanity. And what that means is in his humanity, he faced everything that you and I face. He was tempted in all ways, just like you and I are tempted. He was tempted to cheat. He was tempted to lie. He was tempted to take shortcuts. He was tempted to do things contrary to the will of God. And yet, though he was tempted in all those ways like us, he was unique from us in this way. He never succumbed to those temptations. He never sinned. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And it is that that makes his death so critical for us to understand. Because you see, as we've concluded, death reigns over all of humanity because of our sin. But the sinless Son of God came to defeat death by dying for us, by dying in our place. And that leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning on your, in your bulletin. The first point on your outline this morning is this. Christ's sacrifice was necessary because death reigned through sin. Now I want you to please understand this. The good news of Christ's death is only good news if it actually accomplished something. It's only good news if it did something for us that we could not do for ourselves. 
And that's the point that Paul is making. He tells us that Christ died potentially for our sins. No, Christ died for our sins. What that means is that when in his death, he took our place. He sacrificed his perfect life so that sinners like you and me might be set free from the penalty of our sins. And this is not just something that we find in this passage. It's a repeated theme that goes throughout the scriptures. Listen to what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. He says, for he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see it again in Romans 5 verses 6 and 8. He says, therefore, when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And then in verse 8, we find this. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The writer of Hebrews says it this way in Hebrews 9, verse 28. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And then you hear it once more in 1 Peter chapter 3, 18, where Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Friend, at the very heart of the good news is that Jesus Christ came to live a perfect, sinless, holy life and then to give his life, to sacrifice it in the place of sinners like you and I. Why? Because you and I could never compensate for our sin. We could never do enough to appease the wrath of God against our sin. It took a perfect, holy sacrifice of Jesus Christ to atone and to make way for there to be pardon for our sins. Without it, there would be no hope and death would reign for eternity over all of us. We must also note that Christ's death on Good Friday, though, is only part of the good news. It's only the first half of the good news. Because as we read, verse 4 tells us the other half. Not only did he die for our sins, but he was buried and he rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And what we conclude is that the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus on that first Easter morning is absolutely essential to the gospel. And we know that because as soon as Paul tells us that in verse 4, you know what he does? He goes on this, this litany of, of, of resurrection proofs. He says, you want to know who all saw Jesus bodily after he was risen from the dead? He says, Cephas was one. That's, that's Peter. He says, not only that, but all the 12 saw him after he had risen from the dead. Then there were 500, many of whom were still alive at the time when, when, when Paul wrote that. They all saw Jesus having been risen from the dead. And then he says, James, Jesus' half-brother, saw him. And then Paul says, I, one who was kind of born out of time, I even saw him. And we know that he, was, he interacted with Jesus there on the road to Damascus. Paul goes into that because the inevitable understanding that the reality that Jesus physically and bodily rose from the dead is so crucial to the gospel. Because he says, if it didn't happen, if Jesus really didn't rise from the grave, look at what he says in verse 14. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, he says, if he's not risen from the dead, 
then the gospel message that I proclaim to you has no power in it whatsoever. It's, it's just words without substance. Then he continues in verse 17. He says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Furthermore, he says, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. In other words, if Christ is not raised, then the hope that you and I will one day stand before God robed in his righteousness and forgiven of our sins is useless. So what that means is that the foundational message of the, the gospel of the good news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he rose again from the dead. They must go together. When considering that, we might ask this question, how do we know that Christ's sacrifice did what he came to do? How do we know that it was truly accomplished? We know it because Jesus Christ was raised by the power of God from the grave. We are sure, we can be secure in our pardon for sin because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that leads me to the second point that I want you to see this morning. The second point is this. Christ's resurrection proves that his sacrifice atoned for sin. Now, I want to point you to verse 19 because in it, Paul makes an astounding statement because he's just... He's just told us that everything that we believe and all the hope that we have for the future is useless if Christ did not rise from the dead. And then he tells us this. He said, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, we're all delusional. We're nothing more than sheep and cattle that are being fattened for the slaughter. We're nothing more than pathetic creatures living a pathetic lie. We're worshiping a false image of God that ultimately accomplishes nothing which we hope for. Now that's just an, if you consider that, that is an utterly dismal and depressing thought. Apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope and there is no reason to hope. But I want you to know, having written that, Paul couldn't stand it any longer. And neither can I. Because then he writes in verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. What that tells us is that we have every reason to hope. We have every reason to have complete confidence knowing that Christ's sacrifice has pardoned our sins and offered us eternal life. And furthermore, what we come to realize is that Christ's resurrection actually signals the resurrection of all others who have died in Him. In fact, that's the last point on your outline this morning. The last point is this. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of of those who trust in him. That's what Paul means when he writes that, that Jesus was the first fruits. In Scripture, first fruits were symbolic not only of the best of the harvest, but also of the promise that there was more to come. 
what that means is that Christ is the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God. He leads the way out of the grave and He will be followed in His defeat of death by the future resurrections of those who believe in Him and who have been forgiven of their sins. And to illustrate how that whole thing comes together, Paul writes this in 21 and 22. He says, For since by man, that is Adam, came death, by man capitalized, that is Christ, also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And then Paul puts the exclamation point on it, what he's been saying to us. He said that when the end comes, when Christ delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, it is then that Jesus' triumph will be complete. And then the passage just comes to this huge exclamation point and he says, then Christ must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. So friend, there's the good news. That's what we all want to hear. That's what we all need to hear. It's here that we find that the bad news, the news that tells us that because of our sin, all of us are bound under the curse of death. We find that that bad news has been countermanded by the good news. The good news of the gospel. In fact, the greatest news ever proclaimed is that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And because of that, Brothers and sisters, we can praise our God just like the Apostle Paul did and sing at the top of our lungs just as he did down in verse 55 of 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. All of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. My sermon in a sentence is just simply this. Sin is destroyed and death is defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the message of Easter. It is the message of Good Friday and it is the message of Easter Sunday morning that Christ died but that he rose again. Death and its cause have been swallowed up in the victory that is ours through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what that means for you and me is that God has provided us with hope. Because Jesus lives, we know that even the most tragic circumstance, listen, it's only temporary. We know that even when things look their bleakest, we are reminded that the story of life ends in victory. It does not end in death. We know that it may feel like dark Friday of death right now in our lives. But the message of the gospel and the truth of what it tells us is this. Sunday is coming. Sunday and resurrection is coming. And we can be sure of it. How? Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. I began this morning by telling you about my experience in that cemetery overlooking the graves of my papa and my nanny. What I didn't tell you was that immediately after that interment had been completed, 
all of my family dispersed and we went back to my grandmother's house and we had a meal together and we reminisced with one another and we shared memories with one another. We talked about, quite frankly, how things would never be the same again. The fact is, things haven't been the same again. All of us miss my grandmother. But here's the difference that the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes. You see, though we were and still are saddened that she's no longer with us, we can look past the grave. We can look, we can look past the fact that she's no longer with us. And we can know that death is not the end for her. You see, because of the resurrection of Christ, we can stand next to the grave of one who truly trusted in Christ and know that they are not gone forever. And we also know that if we too have trusted in Christ, we will see them again. That is the hope that the resurrection of Christ brings. Through it, death is defeated. So in light of that, may I ask you a question this morning? Have you ever seriously thought about the resurrection of Jesus? No doubt you've heard the Easter story. Many of you may have thought about it all of your lives because you've heard a thousand sermons on the resurrection of Christ. My question of you this morning is not, do you know the story of Easter? My question is, do you believe it? Do you truly believe that Jesus Christ defeated death, defeated hell, defeated sin, defeated the grave, and rose bodily by the power of God? If not, then I encourage you this morning to settle that issue in your own heart. Because the entire Christian faith rests on the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by God's power. And if the resurrection is not true, then brothers and sisters, we're wasting our time here today. But if it is true, then it's worth embracing. And it's worth following with every ounce of your being. If Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, you should pay attention to what he says. And you should recognize that you, just like all the rest of us in this room, are a sinner. You should recognize that because you are a sinner, the Bible commands all sinners everywhere to confess their sins to God, to admit that they are a sinner, and to place their faith no longer in themselves, but in the only one who is worthy of their faith, in the one who was crucified in your place. The Bible says that that is what is commanded of all sinners. So you should listen. You should pay attention to that. The Bible says that all who will place their faith in Christ will be forgiven and given eternal life. And friend, if you've never truly considered the resurrection of Christ in that way, then today is the day. Now is the time. If you are a believer and your testimony is that you have trusted in Christ then an honest consideration of the resurrection should cause you to stop dabbling in your faith as if it were some hobby. Brothers and sisters, your faith should be the passion of your life. 
Jesus Christ should be given first priority in every aspect of your life and the life of your family. As Paul has written, if the resurrection is not true, then you may safely walk away from it and never give it any further consideration. But if it's true, and might I say this, since it's true, then I beg you to honestly consider the monumental implications upon your life because sin is destroyed and death is defeated through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the message of Easter is just simply this. He is risen. He is risen Brothers and sisters, that is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this